evening will be in 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. So let me invite you to turn there and follow along as as we study this chapter. God had had called out Saul and anointed him as king in private in chapter 9. And then he publicly chose Saul as king in chapter 10. Do you remember uh, there was a casting of lots? All the children of Israel were there to, to be a part of that, so they knew that Saul was chosen by God. And then God had led Saul in battle against the Ammonites in chapter 11. And now we come to chapter 13 where Saul is officially introduced as king in verse 1. And as we read this, you'll notice that this is the the words that are used when all of the kings essentially are introduced at the beginning of their reign. And so let's, um, let's look at that now. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the, hall, and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin, but he sent away the rest of the people each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and the people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance, and they came up and camped in Michmash east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul... He was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which He commanded you for you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about six hundred men. Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with him were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shuol, and another company turned toward Beth Horon, 
And another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So, all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hoes. So it came about on the day of the battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. We're starting to see more and more clearly the demise of Saul as God's leader. That he is starting to express who he really is. He is declining as a leader and as a man who will lead the people on behalf of God, who will be, in a sense, an under-shepherd, an under-leader, someone who will do what God wants. And so, what we'll see here tonight is that God will not be manipulated into giving us what we think we need. Saul is a man who is kind of forcing the situation. In some cases, in other cases, he's very passive. So, we see three, three ways to fail as a leader. Three ways to fail as a leader. Number one, presume upon your own strength. Verses 1-7. to seven. The first way to fail as a leader is to presume upon your own strength. In verses 1-4, through four, we see Saul's overconfidence. Saul is first, he's given his status as a king. I mentioned that this is the way that the kings in general will be, will be introduced. And the text here, you notice that there is some potential trouble with with how this is translated, you see that uh, the word 30 in verse 1 is in italics. That simply means that that's not in the original. So literally it was Saul was years old when he began to reign and he reigned two years over Israel. And so there's lots of discussion as to what exactly these numbers are. And the New American Standard, I think, uh, does I think the best that they can based on the evidence that they have and the manuscripts that they have available that, that, that he probably was around 30 years old. Remember, lots have already happened since this took place. And so this reading is probably correct. That is, that he's already been established as king. He's already been anointed by Samuel. He's already been uh, had the lots cast to show that he was the appointed king. He's already led the Ammonites. So it's very likely that he's not one year old here, but rather 30 years old, and that he reigned for 42 years. Now, in, in Acts 13.21, one, Paul says that Saul reigned for, 40, reigned for 40 years, but as the New Testament authors do, they often just round numbers just to make it, which we do the same sort of thing. We say that, you know, that Abraham, or that the people of Israel was away from the promised land for 400 years when technically it was 430 years. And so there's nothing wrong with, with doing something like that. So I think 42 is probably a good number here. That's how long Saul reigned. But, but what, we, we, what we want to see is not so much as his, uh, his this opening status, uh, his line that opens um, his his rule. But what we want to see is that that he underestimates the power of his enemy in verses two through four. The Philistines, as you know, are becoming a mounting threat, and Israel cannot simply stand still. So Saul decides, you know, they are a threat, and so let's gather some people. So he gathers for himself two thousand men in Michmash, which is four miles northeast of Gibeah, which is Remember, Gibeah is his hometown and also the, the home base of where 
his kingdom would be established. And so he he gets 2,000 men and goes to this important area. It's, a, it's an important um, uh, roadway that needed to be protected. And Jonathan gathers 1,000 men in Gibeah. And then the rest of the men, notice what, what he does with the rest of the men at the end of verse 2. But he sent away the rest of the people each to his tent. And the reason I say that this is probably overconfidence on the part of Saul is because do you remember the last battle that he was in? The only battle that we have recorded of him. It was the battle against Nahash, this, this man who was troublesome to the people of Israel. He wanted, Nahash wanted to gouge out the right eyes of the, the people of Jabesh-Gilead in order that they could continue to serve him, uh, serve Nahash, uh, but that they wouldn't be very capable of going into battle. And so he said, basically, I'll give you a choice. You can either have your right eye cut out or I'll kill you, either one. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. And that's when Saul gathered all these men. Do you remember how many men that he gathered in chapter 11 and verse 8? You can turn back there if you'd like. Uh, he, he sent out this message. Remember, he cut up the oxen and sent it all over Israel and said, hey, this is what's going to happen to you and your farms if you don't come and help us. So, so when, he, when all was said and done, notice 330,000 men came to fight against the Ammonites. And now what is he doing in order to protect himself against an even greater threat, the Philistines? 3,000 will be enough. right? So probably what he's thinking is, you know, we, we didn't have any trouble with the Ammonites. When we finally gathered all these men, we had so many people we didn't even have to use them all. So, so we're going to be fine. And so he makes a military... Uh, and he makes a military move to, to bring these men together. But instead of actually attacking, he just waits it out. Now, Jonathan, on the other hand, his son, verse 3, takes it into his hand and says, listen, this is an opportunity for us to take out one of the garrisons of the Philistines. We want to make a point here. Jonathan is a man who uh, we'll see in the next chapter that he's, he, he's a man who's just willing to go out and fight. He's willing to trust God and and uh, and um, and fight, and Saul seems to be the type that kind of waits to see what happens and and responds instead. Well, Jonathan wins a battle with his only his one thousand men, but he wins a battle there at Geba against the Philistines. And when Saul hears about it, he decides that he's going to tell all of Israel about it. Notice verse uh, verse three. At the end of the verse, then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, "Let the Hebrews hear." In other words, let the Hebrews hear what happened, and then notice what they think happened. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had become odious. So here's the news that spread: Jonathan wins the battle, but the news that spread is that Saul won, and that Israel is now a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. That the Philistines are now ready to attack. You see, what Saul's doing here is he's actually being passive in his leadership. He's not the one who's initiating. He's simply sitting back and doing nothing. And his passivity will be seen even greater in chapter 14 when Jonathan, you remember, takes his armor bearer to fight against the Philistines. But Jonathan's attack here in chapter 13 is one that's like taking a rock to a hornet's nest because it wakes up a sleeping giant. And, and and Jonathan in this victory gets the Philistines really upset now, and they're now ready to uh, attack, and so they start gathering their troops. And notice what Saul does in, in verses five through seven. As all of these these troops are mounting against them, 
Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, that is, that they were being hard-pressed on every side, uh, not, not knowing what they could do, then the people hid themselves in caves, thickets, cliffs, cellars, and pits. And then at the end of verse 7, but as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So what happens when you as the king are in a position where your son wakes up a sleeping giant. I mean, what are you supposed to do in this situation? Well, it doesn't look like Saul really knows what to do, and the people are fearful, and so they start running and hiding, right? The ones who were in this previous battle against the Ammonites, they had this leader who seemed to be very proactive, who would go out and and lead them into this battle. Now he doesn't really know what to do, and so they all just go back and, and hide. We're not going to be victims here. We're not going to be slaughtered by the Philistines who are much stronger than us. Certainly with all these chariots and horsemen that they had, Israel was no match for them, humanly speaking, militarily speaking. And so Israel effectively curls up into the fetal position by hiding in caves and and in the farmlands. And Saul's men just stay with him there in verse 7, but they do nothing. And so the first way to fail as a leader is to presume upon your own strength. Become passive. Um, don't, don't seek God and, and, and don't pursue victory, but instead just become passive and let things just kind of happen. And that's the way that Saul is. The second way to fail as a leader is to disregard the clear commands of God. To disregard the clear commands of God, verses 8-14. through 14. Here's one of many examples that we will see of Saul. There are two specific ones here, uh, and then and then later on, I think it's in chapter 14, where we'll see it as well. But but Saul here clearly disregards the commands of God. Now the reason I say that is because in verse eight, Saul is waiting, says seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come. So what does Saul do? Well, he he can't wait any longer. And so he decides that he is going to, at the end of verse 9, offer a burnt offering. He's going to act as a priest in place of a priest. I'm I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. And I need to know what God is thinking in this situation. I need to know how God's leading. So if Samuel's not going to come, I'm going to do it myself. So he does. And the reason I know that this is sin, this is a clear violation, is because of how Samuel looks at it. Look at verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now, in order to understand why this is a sin, we need to turn back to chapter 10. So turn back there because here we have a command from Samuel which probably goes in line with what's happening here in chapter 13. Chapter 10 Verse 8, here Saul had just been anointed king and this is done in private so not a lot of people know about this, just very few. And Samuel says, you need to go to Gilgal and wait there for seven days and I'm going to offer a sacrifice on your behalf. And so what was Saul's responsibility according to verse 8? It was to just wait there. Notice chapter 10, verse 8. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I, Samuel, will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings, and you will wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. So, 
here, Samuel saying, here's a clear responsibility for you. Now, this is probably several years earlier. And this command is probably not directly linked to this battle against the Philistines, but this is probably something that was very clear to Saul that whenever there is a challenge militarily, you need to hear what God has to say. And you need to have a sacrifice that, that is offered for you. So you need to go to Gilgal. Whenever there's a military difficulty that is on your radar, go to Gilgal and wait there for seven days until I come. And when I come, I will offer sacrifice you for you and I will also hear from God as to what you should do. I'll turn back to chapter 13 because on this occasion, he did wait the seven days. Notice verse 8 of chapter 13. He waited seven days, but Samuel did not come. Apparently, Samuel didn't come until the, the end of the seventh day. It could be that Samuel didn't come to the eighth day, but, but whatever the case, Saul was not supposed to offer sacrifices on his own behalf. Well, Samuel doesn't come, and so Saul decides to take matters into his own hands. And while Samuel didn't come, there was a greater problem that was going on. And from a military perspective, some of Saul's men are leaving. Notice at the end of verse 8, and the people were scattering from him. Do you kind of sense the anxiety of Saul here? He's got a serious military situation that he has to think about and and make a make a make a, a choice as to what to do. And he has to wait in Gilgal. And so he's waiting seven days, and man, the threat must be getting more and more serious. And now what's happening? Some of these two thousand men that were with him and willing to fight for him are now starting to leave. And so as he starts to see that happen, he takes matters into his own hands. He decides to offer sacrifices without Samuel. Now, we could say, well, you know, as long as a person is doing a good thing, it doesn't really matter what kind of... or as long as they have a right motive, it doesn't really matter what they're doing. I mean, what was so wrong with doing a good thing? He's offering a sacrifice to God. Burnt offering to God. Is that not what God wants? Is that not what God asks for? Why does it matter the motive behind it? Or why does it matter the, the, the process? If he had a good motive in it, he wants to do something good, why does it matter the, the method that he uses? And I think the answer to that question can, can be seen when we compare Saul to what Uzzah did. Do you remember Uzzah? 1 Chronicles 15. He was doing something that was done in, a, I think, a good motive. Right? He was trying to protect the ark from falling off the cart. But he did it in the wrong way. That is, he did it in a way that was opposed to what God had told David to do. That he had clearly laid out that the ark should not be carried on the cart, but rather should be carried on poles. And so there are four problems with Saul's presumptuous act here in offering a sacrifice. First, he did only what Samuel was to do. He offered sacrifice. It was a clear violation of what God had told him not to do. Second, he was motivated not by God's desire, but by his present fear. See, we could say, well, you know, Saul actually had a good motive. He wanted to hear from God. That's why he says at the end of verse 12, you know, I, I needed to do this because I, I had not asked favor from the Lord. And so, Samuel, if you're not here to do it, I'm going to go and do it myself. And so we might think, oh, that's actually a really good motive by you, Saul. But I think he was more driven not by what God was going to do or what God was most concerned with, but what was he driven by? At the end of verse 8, the people were scattering from him. 
He was driven by fear of man. And the Philistines in verse 11 were assembling. And, and so I don't think this had to do primarily with, you know, I really want to do what God wants here. You know, we can make things sound so spiritual when we do various things in our lives. Oh, I, I was really concerned about what God wanted here. But do you know what the real test is if that's really our motives? Is are we listening to what we know of God? Right? Are we obeying what He has clearly laid out in Scripture? We can talk all we want about being spiritual, but our motives are seen in how we respond to His Word in obedience. A third problem with this presumptuous act is that he claimed to be seeking the favor of God when really he was just looking for some kind of a blessing in battle. Then the fourth problem is that he shifted blame to Samuel. Notice um, in verse 11, Samuel says, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scouting for me and that you did not and that you did not come within the appointed days. This word you here is actually very emphatic in the Hebrew language. It's, it's like you yourself did not come. So it would be, because I saw the people were scouting for me and that you yourself were late, you failed to come. You see how he's passing the blame over to Samuel rather than taking responsibility for, my, for himself? You see, he really wasn't concerned about God's favor, was he? Because if he was concerned about God's favor and doing it God's way, then he would have done it God's way. He would have obeyed God and he would have done it in God's timing. Did you notice that he never uses as an excuse that he didn't quite understand the instruction? You know, Samuel didn't really make it clear that I was supposed to wait the full seven days. Or you didn't make it clear that I wasn't supposed to sacrifice. He simply said, the reason I did it is because the threat was getting worse and you weren't here. So, what that tells me is not only did God see it as a clear violation of His command, but Saul saw it as a clear violation because he never argued that he didn't know what to do. He knew exactly what to do. The problem was he was unwilling to wait on God. Unwilling to follow God's clear command that, he, that only Samuel should offer the sacrifice on behalf of Saul. So the second way is to disregard the clear commands of God. There's Saul's sin. The response to that by Samuel is rebuke and a promise in verses 13 and 14. Samuel says in verse 13, you have acted foolishly. Samuel was the one who was supposed to offer the sacrifices and the one who was supposed to speak on behalf of God as far as what Saul should do in battle. But Saul didn't want to wait on God's plan. Saul didn't want to wait on God's timing. He didn't want to do it God's way. He wanted to do it his own way. And here is a symptom of a greater problem that is going on here. And that is, in the heart of Saul, he is unwilling to trust in God. Do you see that in verse 13? Samuel says, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which He commanded you. This is the only the beginning of what we will see for Saul. He has turned his heart away from God. And the rest of the story of Saul's rule will be marked not by his dismantling from the Philistines, but rather his defection from God. 
and how the Spirit of God will be removed from King Saul, that is the anointing that was on Saul, to give him the ability to administer in battle that will be removed from Saul and be put on David. God sees this act of sin, clear violation, defiance, and recognizes that Saul is not the man for the job. And so in verse 14, it says, But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, King Saul will not be stripped of his crown and scepter right away, but what was clear is that he would, his descendants would not rule on the throne any longer. In fact, the kingly line would be taken away from his family and put on David's family. Instead, God was seeking a man not who would you know, just be militarily skilled primarily, but a man who would seek after his heart that would be like God. So the first way to fail as a leader is to presume upon your own strength. second way is to disregard the clear commands of God. And the third way is to handle your conflicts without God. Verses 15 to 23. Handle your conflicts without God. One of the purposes of the sacrifices at Gilgal was not only to give thanks to God, but also to hear from God. Remember, Saul said, I, I needed to know, I think it was in verse 11 or verse 12, I needed to know what God's favor was in this situation. But do you notice that Saul actually never got an answer? Saul left Gilgal without receiving a word from God regarding the battle against the Philistines. So here you have Saul in a serious situation. The Philistines have been aroused like a, like a struck hornet's nest. And they're now threatening. Saul's men are afraid. They're starting to scatter. And notice how many men are left in verse 15. At the end of the verse, it says about 600 men. So he goes from 3,000 men down to 600 men. And so what was going to happen? How was God going to lead in this situation? Well, Saul gathers the remaining men together at Gibeah, his hometown, verses 16 and 17. You kind of can see that the Philistines are starting to, to take over a little bit because that place where they had first gathered, Michmash, we saw at the beginning of the chapter, that's now being controlled by the Philistines. Saul and Jonathan meet only a few miles away from Gibeah there in, in the city of Geba. And the Philistines decide in verses 17 and 18 to split up into three companies and to, to take out the important roadways that would hamstring effectively Israel and their ability to attack. And so they go to Ophrah, which is just a few miles north of, of their home base. And then Beth Horon, which is 10 miles west west of Michmash. Again, these are all important roadways. And then wilder, the wilderness just east of Michmash. And so the goal here is to control the roads because if you control the roads, you control the battle. If the Philistines could cut all of them off, then Israel would be trapped and they'd be forced to surrender or to die. And so the Philistines are in a, a very strong position militarily. They have overwhelming manpower. They have this super machinery, superior machinery, the chariots, right, and the horsemen, which Israel didn't have. And they also have geographical dominance. They've started to close in. And Israel only has a few hundred men left. 
And if that weren't bad enough, look at verse 19. Now, no blacksmith, no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. Apparently, what had been happening for some time is that the Philistines were now controlling all the blacksmiths. They had controlled Israel's weaponry and their ability to make weaponry. They were crippling Israel financially as well. That is, they were controlling the blacksmiths and if they needed anything made or or shaped or sharpened, that they would have to pay the Philistines in order to do it. You see, all the blacksmiths of Israel apparently killed or in some way subjected the, the Philistine control so that the Philistines were the ones, the only ones who could produce weapons. What was that going to leave Israel with? Effectively, no chance to win in battle. And so they take all the Hebrew blacksmiths and they say to Israel, if you need some farming equipment sharpened, then we have the corner on the market. We, we have monopolized the blacksmith market and so you can come to us and we'll charge you two-thirds of a shekel. And so that's what Israel did. When they needed farm equipment sharpened, they went to the Philistine blacksmith, paid a heavy price, and went back home. And so, what the text tells us is that there's, there are only two people that have actual weapons that are effective in battle. Everybody else, they'd have to gather some farming equipment or something in order to use it. But it says there in um, verse 22, So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. So we're down to 600 people. None of them have weapons. But they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. So, from every human imagination, Israel is about to get dominated and perhaps wiped out. We'll have to see what happens in chapter 14 next time. I think you already know what's going to happen, but but it's amazing to see how much trouble Israel gets in because they're unwilling to be led by God to a place where they need to go. They're unwilling to listen to God and and most clearly that's seen through the leader that they chose. Israel looks like that she's going to be destroyed. But we know better because we have seen God come to the aid of His people. Even when and especially when their backs are against the wall, God, we know, is the one who controls the battles. He can deliver as Jonathan's going to say next week in 1 Samuel 14, he can deliver, he can rescue, he can save by many or by what? By few. But there's something much bigger at stake going on here than Saul just leaving the altar of worship without a blessing. And there's something much bigger than the battle with the Philistines going on here in chapter 13. And that is this battle that's going on within the soul of Saul. God is showing that Saul is not God's man. He is not God's leader. He's not a man who is after God's own heart, but after the people's heart. And so the kingly line will not continue through him. Instead, God would choose another, a man after his own heart named David. And this man, David, would be the ancestor of the greater David, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is the Son of God and Son of Man, the one who rules in behalf of God and does exactly as God wants as King. This one Jesus who appeared to be disappointing to His own people, remember they rejected Him, 
but He's actually the one who would never disappoint His Father. He's always doing His Father's will. And what was His Father's will? It was for His Son to come to this earth in order that He might die for the sins of the people so that He could bring us to God. Apart from Christ, God refuses us. He rejects us. He condemns us. But in Christ, God accepts us and saves us and adopts us into His family and pours out blessings and honor on us just as He does His own Son. See, the Son of God was like unlike any other human king in that He was, treat, he was treated as if He was a sinner so that we sinners could be treated like we are sons of God. David, the king who would come later, would be used by God to blaze a path that would lead to the establishment of the greater David, the greater king. The one who will reign over Israel for a thousand years and beyond. But when Jesus came that first time, He did not come to reign on a throne. But He came to be rejected and to be killed. And so, following the death of Christ, the rule of someone on David's throne would be delayed for a time. But there is a day that's coming when Israel repents. There's a day coming when someone will return to David's throne and that one is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There, there is a day when the nations as a whole, when the nation of Israel as a whole will bow the knee to Christ as their Messiah. And it will be at that time that Jesus sits on the throne of David on this earth for 1,000 years and eternally to follow. In the meantime, we may rave over the King over the King Saul's of this world that we have set up. We may gush over the King Saul's of this world. We may follow them in their failures and, and, and fear because of their perilous leadership because we've forgotten God. And what we need is what Israel needed at this time in Israel's history. And that is, we need God to come. We need God to come and rescue us from ourselves. Because we have hearts like Saul apart from Jesus Christ. Hearts that are defiant toward God, that, that seek our own ways apart from God. We need God to come and humble us, to cause us to recommit ourselves to His rule. So we, we may look at this story, we may look at Saul's life and say, yeah, what a terrible thing Saul did. I mean, what a terrible leader. But how much are we like Saul in our rejection of God? You know, we, we, we can talk spiritually about how much we love God and how much we want to do it His way and, and do it with the right motives. But many times we're just doing that just so that other people see us as godly rather than actually being godly. And I think that in many ways is how Saul was. And so we can learn much from his negative example that we, we if we are serious about following God, need to to be serious about obeying His Word. So what is it that God has said to you that is clear that you're not obeying? What is it that is in God's Word that is clear that you need to be doing but you're not? And, and there are all sorts of excuses that can mount up because of this, because of my circumstances, my past, my, my, my church, my whatever. But, but the, the question that we need to answer is the question that Saul needed to answer and that he failed in. And that is, what is it that I'm... I need to do with regard to what God has told me to do. Right? The things are starting to fall apart all around me. Don't you see? I'm losing my army. 
And, and Samuel hasn't come yet. We're quick to move on ahead of God where God doesn't want us to go. He wants us to wait on Him. To wait on His timing and to do it His way with the proper motives. And so it just comes down to what it often comes down to when we look through the Scriptures. Simple obedience. Simple faith. Just trusting in what God has said. And that's what makes it so hard to follow God, isn't it? Because we don't see what He's going to do in the whole thing, right? Put yourself in Saul's shoes. Put yourself in Jonathan's shoes. How do you know what's going to happen? You don't. But that's why you need to be like we're going to see next week with Jonathan, just willing to to recognize that God could do great things through me. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm just going to trust Him. Saul was the exact opposite. And so we learn much from him, but we're also at the same time thankful for the king that God will establish, the one who is like him perfectly, Jesus Christ, who will come to reign and rule over us. And we long for that day. Let's pray. Father, we pray for Your grace in looking at our own lives. We, we can see sin often very clearly in the lives of others. We're quick to, to point out mistakes and, and failures in the lives of others. And so, in some senses, it's really easy to see what Saul had done and, and how he failed and to, um, to think shamefully about him. But, Lord, it's really hard because of our own self-deception and the nature of our own hearts to see our own sin. And so we pray that You would reveal to us clearly where we are violating Your law, where we are doing things our own way, where we're failing with regard to our responsibilities. And Lord, there's certainly a number of things that, that, that You could be drawing our minds to even right now. Maybe it's with regard to the way that we work. Maybe it's with regard to the way that we treat our spouse or our children. Maybe it's the way that we treat this church or or we treat people in our neighborhood. Maybe it's the way that we handle our money. Uh, maybe it's just the way that, that we conduct ourselves in our thought lives. Or, or there are a number of things that, that You could be pointing us to. Whatever it is, Lord, make it clear. Through the power of Your Spirit, bring those sins to the surface. And help us to know where we can follow You and also the, the proper course of correction to change that. And we're thankful that Your Word has not left us um, without an understanding of what we can do, but that it is sufficient. That we have everything that we need to conquer this sin and to, and to fight against this sin. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. There is not one temptation that has been given to us that, that is not common to man and, and that You, being faithful, will give us with each of those temptations a way of escape. And so we have nothing to to say. We, we have no excuses. We stand before You with our sin. And we, believers of all people, uh, should be faithful to You after all that You've done for us. But Lord, we are often prone to turn away from You and to trust our own ways. And so we pray that You would draw us back through the power of Your Spirit. Lord, may this conviction that comes from Your Spirit be something that that cuts down to the deepest marrows of, of who we are, but, but also that is uh, soothing in the sense that, that it brings about final healing. The, the, the scalpel of a, 
of a surgeon is certainly painful, but but it has a purpose. And so we're thankful when you do convict us, show us our sin. Um, and while initially it doesn't feel good to look at our sin and, and how ugly we are before you, we recognize that it's also ultimately soothing, healing, and balming for our soul because it brings us back into uh, a proper relationship with you and, and shows us where we need to be changed. And so help us tonight. Help us to use the resources that you've given to us, both your word and, and your people, to, to, to work together in this fight against the sin that we face. And we pray that you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.